Hello and welcome back to the Utopia series. In this episode, we're talking collective action and organizing with our guest, Tanya Chiganze from Decolonizing Architecture. The phrase power to the people became popular during the 60s by a youthful generation growing tired of the establishment's oppression and echoed by the Black Panthers when protesting against the ruling class. It's been used in film, in popular music, from James Brown and John Lennon to Public Enemy and Rage Against the Machine. We'll be unpacking what power to the people means to us in the educational context and what student action looks like. I'm going to pass over to our guest so she can tell us a little bit more about herself. Sure. Um, so I'm Tanya. I'm a third year architecture student, um, undergrad at the University of Bath. and. Um, yeah, last summer in June, uh, myself as well as a group of other students in the uni um, came together to form this group called Decolonized Architecture. And um, yeah, it was really born out of, I guess, many students kind of ex- having similar experiences and um, seeing certain kind of inequalities or rather kind of unspoken experiences. Um, never really uh because there's kind of not many um i would say home students of um fame background um so there wasn't really that much of a conversation um and overall it's aiming to just kind of address the quite western centric approach to architecture that i think uk education has currently and um a good time to do that was during like the peak of Black Lives Matter. So um, it was kind of when everyone was more aware of uh, different kind of uh, systematic um, examples of racism. And um, yeah, it, it started out as a group of us just sending out uh, an open email um, to the director or the head of department. And um, it circulated and it had different action points such as um, diversified staff, um, when it comes to history and theory, address um, architecture outside of uh, Western Europe. And it had around um, 200 signatories and that kind of just started it all. Um, Yeah, and and, um, fortunately we're really supported by staff and um, our actions are approved by them. And it just kind of catalyzed like these action groups that we've been running since then. Uh, so that's kind of how it how it came about. <laughs> that's so awesome. I love hearing about um, the light bulb moments for different organisations. Yeah. Like that moment where you snap and you're like, okay, let's get together and let's do this. Um, yeah. When it started, were you working with friends or literally just people on your course that felt the same way? Um, I think it was the second one. Um, it was literally just um, kind of people that we have a year group chat and some people were like linking um, petitions and things like that. And then there was a conversation. And so I just kind of um, talked to some people who also felt passionately about it. And so we were a really small group at first. And then we also saw, um, because we were in second year at the time, Mm -hmm. we also saw the current, well, they've graduated now, but um, the fourth years at the time, yeah. We're also doing kind of the same thing and uh, they had written the open email and so we just kind of joined together um, and then the two groups came together and we formed under the name of Decolonized Architecture Bar and um, yeah and then we kind of organized um, our first anti-racism forum 
um, with our director of studies, um, which is amazing because um, they really helped kind of reach out to all of the staff and um, start the conversation in that way. So just like collaboratively um, highlighting like students saying their real student experiences um, being able to actually have this platform where everyone can listen if they want or um, in smaller breakout rooms they were able to discuss it more in detail with staff and just really kind of um, let people actually um, say what they might have been thinking for years before that. That's interesting I'm curious to know about those interactions between like the staff and the students did you yeah. have like any obstacles or um, yeah what was like the attitudes towards this? most staff being genuinely very eager to learn more and um, understand where we're coming from and I think um, with the forum it was like a presentation style and then in the breakout rooms staff and students could speak um, and, and give their own opinions and um, it was it was it almost felt like we were the teachers and <laughs> we had some staff you know um, wanting to understand why architecture is political and why it's not just about the original Le Corbusier principles of, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, modernism, air, light, and why it's more than just the physical attributes. Um, but overall, um, when we got feedback after the forum, uh, it was by and large very positive. Um, and we find that our department is really open to kind of progressing forward and understanding how like the curriculum and the environment can um, change for the better um, and like what their role is to play as well as us as the student group um, kind of pushing that. See that's interesting because I always find that when people are very like open to an idea such as the ones that you've brought up I always wonder why has it not been done before? So the Mm. staff, the question of lecturing, the question of structuring the curriculum why hasn't it been done before? Like, um, yeah. what are those reasons? Did you ever get like some kind of like explanation for it? Mm, well, I think the most obvious one is if someone doesn't have a seat at the table, they're not able to speak for themselves. Mm. So I would say it's a wider problem in architecture of there just being um, not an accurate representation of wider society in terms of um, ethnicity and um, so looking at recent figures um, architecture in terms of professions um, or professionals are it's like 90% white compared to the national average of there being around 14% uh, of the population being BAME so it's this this slight imbalance and I think if um, most people come from the same perhaps middle class white background then um, this is as towards wanting to explore further topics but if it's not directly relevant or if someone just doesn't have the actual expertise on it then they're less able to feel qualified to lecture on it so I feel like it's a mixture of um, a need to have a more diverse staff base as well as also a lot of genuine attempts have been made by students in the past but with education, as a first year, you might not feel like you have learned enough to perhaps challenge what you're learning because you just want to be good at your course and, um, you know, you're, you're still wanting to learn from your teachers. Um, so by the time you want to actually raise any um, 
queries or have your own opinion your fourth year and maybe the um, effort goes for a while but once you graduate it kind of stops there and then the cycle starts again and so um, with decolonized architecture it was mainly prioritizing just having continuation and a group that's there to see through the action points um, and yeah just overall just make sure there's a sustained effort which is really um, like on the staff side that's really sustained but as well I think it's stronger when it's both staff and students working together um, so yeah I feel like we're really fortunate to have that overall department-wide kind of effort going on. That's really good. I like you touched on the idea of like staff and students collaborating together. I think yeah. before we break down that feeling of like hierarchy or that feeling that, you know, you can't go to them and demand or even ask for certain things that you need, the more mm -hmm. you can become. Because I think there's the structure of just like we're the students, we go do the work and we come back. I think that that can limit us a lot, limit a lot of the potential mm -hmm. of what, like what we could do. And um, yeah. Yeah, and I find, okay, so with extracurriculars, because technically this is almost like an outside of the main education. Yeah. So you guys yeah. probably spend a lot of time on it. How do you feel about that, being an architect? Uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like having to juggle seven things with only two arms, really. <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, it's good to remain humble and grounded and remember that we're students and we are here paying nine grand a year, um, in some cases more, um, to get our education. So um, I think we've all been prioritising that. And for those of us on placement, also having that. And then we just communicate and see what spare time we have mm -hmm. and um, this leeway. Um, so in terms of our day to day, um, we have like weekly meetings. Um, and then we have monthly open meetings um, for anyone um, either within the group or any students who want to join um, and just say like feedback about what they'd like to see us do or we just tell them what our future plans are. Um, and so, yeah, having that structure really helps because then we can work around like our, our weekday studies and then um, do more like during the weekend. So, but it is interesting because um, I have found that I feel both like inside and outside of the curriculum at the same time, like trying to just um, do what tutors um, put in the brief and fulfill that and have my like develop my my own architectural style, but also think how can we talk to these tutors and say like how that can be different. So it's like having a critical eye both outside whilst also wanting to just fulfill your education on the inside. So it's kind of like, yeah, kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde situation, but it seems to be working so far. So, yeah. That is so good. Because um, I, I was asking that question just because I know how stressful and busy the life of an architecture student can be. So yeah. try and juggle that besides organising. And organising, you want to do it in a very professional way. You want to be put together when you present these forums. You want to create good graphics which you guys do on your Instagram page <laughs> you want to like really present like a good front so trying to split your time between both I mean I suppose it just makes you all the better like a better student because you can manage your time between the two yeah yeah, yeah definitely I think um I found with a lot of other architecture students as well we're very pressure driven so um having that need 
to organize yourself like gives you more incentive to actually do that um whereas I guess if I didn't have much to do I would spend a lot of time on Netflix or something like that but um (laughs) having a proactive lifestyle I think suits me quite a bit um but yeah I would say uh well I'm curious about you actually I'm curious about since you have your own platform and you're a master's student as well which I'm yet to experience like have you found the same thing or it's only been a couple of months, but it's funny that you started your organization in second year because I did as well. Um, at our uni, there was there's not really many like societies or any activities going on, and there was no kind of like ACS or anything, any oh, kind wow. of like, um, yeah, no group like that. So me and my friend um, Vintu, we started a BAME group which was really interesting. So we just got like BAME students from different departments, like the art department and stuff, anyone really, just to come along to these meetings. So we were doing that. So we were just organizing meetings, trying to create like little graphics and stuff like that, create open forums. And I found it really stressful because I think, (laughs) (laughs) because you know how the course is, I felt like it didn't allow for like much time to do these things. And even like get another, it was funny because like the architecture student turnout for these meetings was always like quite mid and then you'd get Mm -hmm. quite from different um, subjects coming together. But it definitely, first of all, I think regardless of how much stress it put me in, it really made me realize like how much potential we have as like individuals just to get people together because Mm -hmm. the idea comes from like one or two people. And yeah. it's responding to a need that loads of people shared. Like the amount of people that were turning up to these meetings was really impressive. Um, mm. And yeah, it just made, I don't know, it made me feel a lot more like I could recognize the power that I have as like an individual yeah. to start something. Cause I'm quite shy. So I, <laughs> I would never have done this normally. Like I was glad that I had like my friend with me and we would like bounce off. And then we had like a team of like, four of us and we were like different um ethnicities as well so we were bringing different thoughts and ideas to the table and it was just really Mm -hmm. cool like you know when you feel like you're starting something you're doing something important so yeah Yeah. that was amazing so I'm sure you feel the same way and um yeah actually yeah let me ask you about your team like how do you feel how did your team get together because that's always important yeah okay so um it, it's had a lot of chops and changes because it's been like a really kind of a hectic time. So it started out with me and um, five other second years. And so it's always been kind of like a team kind of collaborative. And um, so we had our own group. And at first we were just like figuring out like um, our initial manifesto and just we were like, oh, is it going to resonate with the rest of the year and things like that. Um Will other people share our views and things? Um, and then we also became aware of the um, large group of fourth years. And then we joined together. And then we found that, um, especially like you said, with architecture, a lot of people might feel like they want to contribute, but maybe not um, too frequently because time and, and their own um, commitments and things. So then we did a call out for um, an actual committee of just, to do like administrative things just to keep it going um, and make sure there's someone who has time. Um, and so that's when we had um, myself and then Charlie Mwendra, 
who um and so we kind of just co-chair it um and just kind of make sure we're aware of everything that's going on our different outreach uh, programs and uh, the different aspects of what we do because we're kind of trying to address different the different ways we need to decolonize and so that requires a lot of i would say organization and then we also have um mohit booch and flora um and they uh are graduates now and I find that that's really helpful because they're on the graphics um, so they're behind all of the amazing kind of um, images and diagrams we have on our Instagram and because they have graduated and they're doing a year out on placement that really helps because um, I find that probably takes them a lot of time and maybe having like a, a regular work schedule like really appeals to that compared to the hectic kind of sometimes late night architecture lifestyle. Um, yeah, and then we also have Jasmine um, and she's uh, doing a master's now, but she uh, was in Bath last year and she's um, in charge of our events and just communicating. And um yeah, I think that's the six of us. Um, and then overall, but we like to feedback to a wider group we have that's kind of a newly started um, society or group that's just free for anyone to be a part of the WhatsApp group who's a student at Bath or alumni. Um, and that's kind of like the overall format. So just um, it's a place where like anyone who has any ideas or wants to contribute and start their own creative venture um in line with our mission can do so and it's yeah it's kind of just like uh the weekly meetings or the monthly meetings so like an open forum for anyone who wants to raise any queries and things like that um but yeah it's it's really cool because there's, it's really active there's always a lot going on and um university-wide as well like we've received so much interest from people who or um, aren't on our course, but are still also trying to uh, address equality, diversity and inclusion, um, and who are more aware of um, like power imbalance um, and equity. And so like, it's, it's such a wide network that we're finding within Bath and now outside of it. Um, and so it means that like in terms of future plans, um, there's a lot to just kind of strategize and just, um, see how we have that in line with our future goals and make sure that even in like 10 years time, we see this effort still being done, um, see the results as well, and hopefully be able to compare to what it's like now and, and see how much like it's made a positive change. Um, so that was a lot, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think what's really interesting is as well, how this idea that you guys had is kind of moving beyond maybe like the sphere of what you thought it would be, because in terms mm -hmm. of future plans I feel like it is going to keep spreading and like the idea of it connecting to different departments that are experiencing mm -hmm. similar problems or have similar aspirations kind of mm -hmm. like sometimes this idea that you have it spirals in the best way possible and I think yeah. it's really good um mm -hmm. I guess I wanted to ask as well what what have been some of the most like significant achievements that you guys have done so far or like what you're most proud of um so we're really proud of the feedback we've got from a document we released to all the tutors and critics in our department um it's called the inclusive review and it's essentially addressing a lot of comments students have made on um kind of experiences they've had during their final crit um 
So um, students of different cultural backgrounds have found that sometimes there can be like an emphasis on their background and who they are rather than their design and things like that. And um, feel like maybe their narrative isn't as understood in a context where you can be taught mainly just UK architecture or Western architecture. So um, it was just kind of like a helpful guidance document on tutors just knowing um, or a lot of people kind of say, I want to be an ally, but how do I be an ally? Where do I start? There's like so much to address. And so we kind of gave a few pointers on um, how can I be anti-racist and talking about perhaps just giving the student more of a voice, chance to explain, rather than a lot of maybe um, unguided questions. Um, and then after that, we kind of had a lot of tutors. Um, I've had some friends approach me and show me that because it was all online um, it was uh, kind of online for it, but show me discussions that tutors had been giving with them and they had the review kind of document up on the screen and that was really rewarding to see like groups that I'm not necessarily a part of in my own tutor situation actually talking about that and and people wanting to learn and and seeing like just the willingness to do that because we weren't sure how much pushback we, we were going to get, but like to see everyone openly embracing that has been really just amazing. Um, and then I would say the outreach kind of approach that we have to it. So that was inside the department, but also through our Twitter and our Instagram, um, seeing different firms um, in terms of practice, actually um, saying that this is adaptable to what we do as well. So it's not just education, it can also be. Um, through consultation and th through just like the way they communicate with staff, um, it's relevant as well. So seeing how much it's actually appealing to people across the UK as well as the department is just kind of mind blowing. Because like you said, like you don't really, we can underestimate how much power we have to kind of relate to what other people are going through too. So to have that confirmed is just, I don't know, really, really rewarding. So yeah, I would say those moments have been the best. Um, but I think we've got the best yet to come. We've started like a lot of um, discussions on outreach and um, addressing kind of the student body um, in architecture and how we can make it more open and accessible to different students of different backgrounds as well. So yeah, very exciting time. That's so good. Okay, so um, I guess I want to talk a bit about future planning as well. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the incentives that you have in mind for like? Mm -hmm. So I would say since the beginning, we've had three categories of goals that we'd like to achieve. One would be to do with the curriculum. So um, I would say with our school, we um, like to integrate our modules towards our larger design modules so that it all feeds in. And so in terms of what's relevant to us, it would be kind of addressing history and theory and just discussing with tutors um, who are experts in their fields, how you know they feel about, um, I would say addressing the wider context of uh, Western architecture and kind of how present it is in uh, countries um, outside of Europe because of colonization um, and kind of maybe being taught about that um, and so that's going to be a large change in the next few years um, because the university wide is has their own kind of plans for that 
Um, so it's curriculum and then resources, just letting students, students of colour, as well as just um, across the department, being able to have their own agency and learn about architecture of different um, typologies, different cultural backgrounds. So we work with the library to kind of um, request different books and resources in and just let students know that they can have their own guided education. And then also it would be through um, student body admissions um, and addressing the attainment gap that architecture has UK-wide as well as um, in our department that we're still looking into. So, um, yeah, so I would say uh, in terms of the actual quantified goals, it would be just uh, seeing the learning objectives um, of the curriculum, um, looking at the statistics in five years' time, ten years' time, um, to see what is, if there's still an imbalance um, ethnicity-wise and uh, in terms of more than just ethnicity, but we've also seen in terms of um, area, like in terms of what the quintiles of higher education access there is, um, and making sure that students from all quintiles kind of have equal opportunities. And then, um, yeah, just making sure that when we look at library reading lists, there's a wide variety. Um, and so it's kind of like a mixture of quantity and quality and making sure that we adapt to the situation and we're actually um, addressing uh, the reality of what it is rather than having our own goals and uh, separate to what the department is doing and make sure we're always like working together. To, so it's like, yeah, an ongoing kind of, uh, are we doing the right thing kind of situation. <laughs> Yeah, that's really good. It's a very like pragmatic approach to this. So yeah, yeah. it's not just oh, we're here, we're organising, we're going to put this idea out there. You've actually got very um, well organised like goals for this, and I think this is one of the best ways of revolutionising anything. You know, you actually mm -hmm. have the framework behind it, and that's what you guys mm -hmm. are doing. And working with the established framework to kind of like reform it, refine it revolutionize it make it different I think that's like a really key and just a very good thing that you guys are doing yeah yeah that's good to hear <laughs> um I would say yeah I think that's it we're hoping to do uh, that because you can you can be as well I think anger can be a good fuel for change and it can really um create the energy that is needed but it might not be as sustainable because you can uh, pick it as much as you want outside of the office. But I feel like um, if you do it that way, sometimes ears might close and it's good to see like how you can actually appeal to the way people think and, and ask questions like, why do you have that opinion? Why are you more comfortable um, staying with the way it's always been and maybe just discussing the benefits of trying to see more progressive change and things like that. I found that that's how you actually can have people be on board with what you feel like is necessary. Um, and so I feel like it, it's a mixture of like having that kind of exciting buzz and like passionate kind of in, uh, what's the opposite to inertia kind of like movement <laughs> um, as well as kind of seeing overall, like how can we keep this going and how can we, um, kind of appeal to people who want to do it but also have a day-to-day -day life and need to do that as well as their work and, and things like that so 
yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a bit it's a huge learning curve. I I was discussing with Charlie as well, like how did we do this in second year? We haven't even finished our degree yet. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's kind of like a double learning curve, I guess. It it does feel like I'm improving more as a student as well as um, an activist. It's still I still find it interesting calling myself an activist because sometimes you can be like am I you know am I really one but I guess um that's the field I've chosen (laughs) yeah and I saw a talk with Zaid he was speaking with someone um yeah one of the videos and uh the girl is actually saying that oh um you know sometimes we think she said that if you in an ideal world she would just tear everything down and like build from the ground up but Mm -hmm. I think doing the work to work with established organizations and like you said try and change people's minds in Mm -hmm. an organic way is also Mm -hmm. like a very impactful way of making change happen if you can manage to do it which you guys are um then you you kind of have everything already in place for you, which is really good. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it does feel helpful to have like a framework that we can look at and see how can we change this. And I think, yeah, I do think in an ideal world, kind of <laughs> completely changing it and tearing it all down would be, I would say, the fastest way of reform or, or revolutionizing it. But I think that maybe giving us challenges of <laughs> having people agree with completely scrapping the lot and, and starting again. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel like it might be kind of a double whammy situation. So it's, it, it's, it is the ideal, but it's also what is, um, I guess, realistic as well, mm-hmm. um, which is also what you need to address. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like contextualizing revolution in the framework in the world that we live in is sometimes mm. difficult because um I don't know you think back to like years ago when people actually used to like revolt and like go crazy like we mm. just don't can't do the same thing today you know we have to be <laughs> logical more rational so I'm curious do you read any revolutionary texts um yeah so I've been reading most recently um not that architectural, but I've been reading uh, kind of the, what is it, Angelo, Angela Saini. She wrote um, Race Science, the kind, it's called um, uh, Superior, the Science of Race. And um, she talks about how we can actually approach um, kind of how it's, yes, a subjective notion, but it has like real, actual, objective kind of consequences um, in society. Um, as well as, um, I think everyone's read this book called um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, that was kind of like at the beginning of my journey of being more um, proactively anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think it's kind of like a mixture. I've been reading architectural books as well as uh, for my course um, and balancing that with uh, my um, extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm also starting to read the Black Skyscraper, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I was asking that question because finding those resources can sometimes help to like just 
I don't know when I whenever I find like a good lecture online about this I literally just like I breathe out and I'm like okay like this is this is nice that it exists I'm not like going crazy trying to fight against the establishment or something um yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um also I wanted to ask because obviously you guys uh study in Bath what what's your experience of studying in Bath um that's a big question yeah I think um do you mean in terms of like learning environment and or just uh yeah learning environment pretty much everything because obviously it also carries a lot of like historical context but Bath is one of like the biggest institutions for architecture so Mm -hmm. you feel like a lot of pressure about that um has it been everything that you kind of like thought it would be has it shaped up to be in that way um yes I would definitely say in terms of like academics it's really um ambitious and and all of the students around you are very ambitious and talented and reflect how you know Bath is um one of the best unis for architecture um I found that we are pushed to have our own style as well as um like we're known for being practical and so we are really um taught on creating real buildings but also um the emphasis is on like it centering around people so I think it is a good curriculum and I found that um yeah it's a good format for having us like create our own style um I think in terms of having your own narrative with architecture it is as a university in general Bath is overall um I think not performing that well in terms of like um racial diversity and that might be reflected in the department I think yeah um and so you do sometimes get that um feeling of being the only one or being able to count like how many other people of your ethnicity are on one hand um, and I think yeah people have different responses to that some might seek out others um to get a sense of being in a group or some might um feel fine with it um so but i also think one thing that should be addressed is bath is a huge has a huge history of benefiting from uh slavery in terms of where the architecture came from (laughs) um and how it was built and there are a lot of buildings that are directly slavery funded um in the city center and i think that's one thing um, we can address as well overall um, and universities across the UK just addressing the context um, of where we're studying and how that places us as students and how that might affect us, our, our worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's definitely a mixture, but I feel like um, we're all really aware that we're quite privileged to be studying in Bath and the effect that has on our architectural careers as well. And um, in general, people just want to. Um, kind of be grateful for that overall and yeah just succeed in in where we are yeah I want to rewind real quick and let's pick off on that point about um the the context and the historical context of Bath and obviously studying as an architecture student Bath was built as a direct um consequence or like a benefit of slavery Um, of mm. the slavery trade in like Bristol do you feel like that being in that city did you feel any way about the architecture around you do you feel like that affected mm. you in any way 
Yeah, well, I guess your first impression is that it's really pretty and you're just like in awe of it. Um, and then you feel that because Bath also is, has a very kind of um, high standard of like socioeconomic living. So you feel that you're in this entirely middle class environment. And um, if you're not from that background, you do like very much are aware of that. Um, so but it's hard to really sense that it's, it's hard to know straight away that this is from um, slavery. It's 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 just benefiting the richer until you start to learn about it um because yeah it you, once you realize that um when kind of like the renaissance of building in bath during um the 18th century happened and that was the same time it was like the peak of the slave the transatlantic slave trade um that's when you realize that this is literally um the peak example of britain benefiting from um, plantations um, in the Caribbean, um, like for example, when you think about how um, we have Pulteney Bridge, which is one of our most famous attractions, um, and that was uh, directly um, kind of funded by William Pulteney, who at his time was like what, the largest plantation um, owner, uh, and so you do feel like the sense of injustice. You feel perhaps a sense of anger and. Um, yeah just feeling others at the fact that this is such an obvious example of of history but it's deemed not important enough to be taught um because we're taught about um yeah the physical aspects of bath like the stone the materials um but not like how how it really happened in the first place not like you're you've almost been told like a fairy tale without all of the details like with gaps in it um so yeah it's kind of like you have that first phase of just being in awe of how historic it is and then when you enter the second phase of knowing why it can be quite othering i find um and um yeah i think you just develop this passion for like actually talking about it and letting other people know like this is actually where all of these buildings came from and and how it feels into like the royal family and, and things like that yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, I've been reading a book uh, by Neil Leach and it's all about architecture and revolution. And yep. he talks about how um, memorials to tragedies of the past should not be erased. So he says that Europe needs to live with its history and retain monuments to its traumatic past. I feel like this, mm. quote, this quote is specifically in relation to like Berlin and the Berlin Wall and the tearing down of it. However, yeah. I think it like really rings true with the discussions that have been raised in the past year so you've got like bristol and its co its colonial history um yeah. edward colston and then you you guys in bath as well also have william beckford and all these um ties to him so i was kind of curious mm. on what is your opinion of Ooh. that so monuments streets street names um building names are all like dedicated to these guys how do you mm. <laughs> um not great <laughs> um I just kind of just give it the side eye I think um, um I feel like I guess in a way I'm not shocked um seeing how Britain has handled its history so far um and tried to at first it celebrated aspects of um 
its kind of glory in the slave trade. And then it went into trying to straight away ignore it and, and separate itself from that and not teach us about it. Um, but I guess what I currently feel about is um, just, I guess, eagerness for it to be looked at critically now. And um, I guess I'm more geared towards wanting to see how people react to it now and have a new approach to it. And um, I'm very much for the renaming of all of the kind of um, Colston namesakes that, that's going on in Bristol. So I feel quite positively about um, the renaming of um, previous Colston Girls' School and things like that. Um, yeah, I would say it's kind of, I'm in a transition period because before when these conversations weren't really being uh, had, I felt angry, but now I feel more like hopeful, I guess, for um, all of the efforts being made, but just um, eager to see what is actually done and, and yeah, kind of on the edge of my seat to, to see that, to see if people follow through since uh, last year. Yeah, I think the conversations that I've heard and watched over the past year have just been so interesting. I mean, you've got people saying that they hold such, you know, cultural value to the city. But how many times do these people that live in the city actually stop by that statue and read what's mm. below it? So, I mean, if it was to come down, would it really affect your daily life? Like, mm. there's those questions. And then there's also, I think, like a strong argument about how you know, having them there is a good thing because it reminds us of, um, you know, what happened. But again, it's kind of like that fairy tale brush that everything has been like painted and glazed over with needs to mm. be stripped off. And if we're going to keep them up mm. there, I feel like a full story should be told. Um, mm. I actually pointed this out because shout out to your graphic designer, but the <laughs> logo for the decolonized architecture is literally um, a yeah. down. And I, yeah. you know what, it took me a minute to clock that because I kept seeing the um, logo, but you know when it's like smaller, so like I was like, hmm, this looks cool, this looks cool, and then I saw it properly, and I was like, oh, whoa, yeah, that's that is a small yeah. design move. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Overall, I think it's good because we want to represent kind of not um, just tearing everything down, but kind of completely taking apart the way we look at history. So like now having a more critical view of it, challenging the way it's been taught so far, the episteme of it being this environment of just certain people having a voice to teach others. Um, it's quite interesting what you mentioned about people not being upset about this. Uh, about people not valuing the statue before it was teared down because um, I feel like it's people are more upset at the idea of um, people of colour kind of having more advocacy now or self-advocacy because there's also a statue or a part of Nelson's Column in London on the base where there's um, a, a depiction of a black sailor um, who was actually there fighting with Nelson and it shows kind of like the contributions black people have had in history, but no one is really celebrating that and no one's, no one's taking it. But as soon as Colson is teared down, it's seen as this big emblem. So I feel like it's, it's people not really wanting to acknowledge this, um, acknowledge kind of maybe giving, this giving up of um, exclusive power that is currently concentrated at the top. And that's what they're trying to uphold, which I don't think benefits anyone really, unless you're 
you're elite, <laughs> really. So I think it's better when there's more cohesion um, on the ground um, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all in the trenches together. So yeah. but I thought one of the powerful like images and moments that I remember seeing this year was just that image of people tearing down that Colston statue. If you really look at it, zoom into the faces, the arms that are actually pulling it down, it's mm. such a mixture of like culture identities doing it together. And I think mm. when we talk about like power to the people, I think it's really important to note like how society, how far we've come as a society, because we've got a lot more like allies um, and a lot more people just interested in uncovering like the truth. Um, mm. So I think that is like one of the really empowering things that when we start these organizations now, it feels like we're not just like throwing a stone out into the dark. Like at least there's a bit more light um, showing mm -hmm. what we're trying to like wade into. And I think that's really powerful. Um, on the notion of the statues as well that you mentioned, I really, last year, I think it might have been last year or like two years ago, I had the pleasure of seeing um, Cara Walker's uh, big installation at the Tate, the Fonz mm -hmm. and the Arcanus. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't think I have. <laughs> it's really amazing. You should check it out. But she essentially um, created this kind of monument, which is a fountain. And on it, she's depicted the story, the history of the transatlantic slave trade. And mm. I, when I saw that, I was like, this is the first time that I've seen like a monument in England that really captures the entirety of that history. So rather than glorifying the Europeans' perspective and, um, you know, the European role and the British Empire's role in the transatlantic slave trade, what it does is it, it tells history in the accurate way that it is. And um, it's not a celebration of the British Empire, which most monuments like the Victoria Memorial in front of Buckingham Palace, um, you know, most monuments are built with the intention of glorifying uh, these people. What it does is it just tells a very raw um, story about it and it questions the narratives of like power structures. And I think that's just uh, it's really powerful. So yeah, if um, you do get a chance, maybe when things open up again, uh, definitely go check it out. It's such a huge monument. It's at the Tate in the Turbine Hall. So, I mean, it's huge. Mm. massive. And yeah. It and you feel like wow you know history could be represented like this yeah and it's not yeah mm. yeah you see how much could be done but it's almost willfully not being done mm -hmm. um almost intentionally yeah um, <laughs> so what are your final thoughts on everything i suppose just uh, decolonized architecture how how far do you think it can go? Like, what what is your ideal vision of the future for architectural education? Yeah. Well, it's a it's a big uh, mission, I would say. Um, um, I would say the furthest it can go is we see we continue to see other groups like this um, forming in other um, institutions. Mm. And we continue to see um, more proactivity in firms as well, so that in both education and practice, um, we have this overall effort being made. And our biggest goal would be to see architecture be um, represented holistically. Um, so 
the full history of how we've come to modern day, um, more than just the Western canon, because there are so many other influences, um, and also see it as uh, an educational institution as well as a profession, be less exclusive and um, enable people of all backgrounds to be able to partake and less exclusive in terms of, yeah, um, uh, class, race, everything else. Um, so that would be the utopic ideal for it to be completely mystically open and um, less barriers overall. Yeah, that's so good. Um, so the title of this episode is Power to the People. So as a yeah. student, you are part of the people. So yeah. kind of what advice would you give to other students that would kind of like to organise and mm. um, kind of address power imbalances in their university? Mm. Um, from experience, I've seen that it's definitely not as scary as you initially think it is. So just, I think, please have confidence, believe in um, your own feelings, your own opinions, and um, just talk to people. It can just be perhaps a friend or someone who you feel might have a, a similar experience to you. And um, keep open the lines of communication. And um, yeah, I would say don't be afraid to address the person at the top. Um, send an email about what <laughs> what your concerns are, and just see how it goes, and 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 be open to adapting and seeing how you can actually make these changes. I wonder how it's going to affect like our practice in the future. Yeah, I really hope it affects it positively. And mm. well, I think it in order for it to really make a change, people need to really like prioritize having uh, not just tokenism but like someone who can actually who actually knows how to make these changes rather than just like an echo chamber of guessing and things mm. so yeah I hope I think you know maybe in a few decades we'll see how it's impacted it um, as more people are able to access education that is amazing okay thank you so much for this discussion <laughs> it's been really enlightening and again um Seeing how organised you guys have been with your group in forming this decolonised architecture has really opened like a necessary conversation that I know so many BAME students feel like across the board. So I think it's something that's really important and you always need like a catalyst for change and yeah. it's I think it says a lot that the catalyst is coming from the student body and not from the top down, like we're kind of <laughs> bringing it upwards. Yes, yeah, I've enjoyed chatting, just offloading everything. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that speaking with Tanya today has really pointed out the importance of organising from the bottom up does work and we can actually make long lasting change in the institutions that we receive our education from. You can find out more information about what Tanya Chiganze does at Decolonise Architecture Bath and you can find them on Instagram and Facebook or online. It's been your host Lauren Lois and thank you so much for listening. Look out for our next episode where we're discussing convivial responsibility.